people just look at the cost of it sometimes as opposed to, you know, if you've got an office there, you've got to be there every month. And if not, you've got to have other leaders there of, of similar level to you being over there to run it. It's not just employ low cost labor, set up a bank account, it's easy to pay and easy to run. That's It's the complete opposite to that. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 242 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. If you don't offshore yet, you probably know an accountant or a financial advisor or a best agent who does. Offshoring is an option we all have to look into. I'm not saying all of us need to do it, but I think we all need to at least consider it, weigh it up, look at our options. So I asked Nick Sinclair of Toa Global, a large offshoring provider in the Philippines, for his insights about offshoring. This was my first interview on Zoom, even though we published other interviews that were recorded later. It was my first interview on Zoom. And I completely messed up the mics in this interview on my side. So Nick sounds great, but my voice sounds terrible because this brand new headset I had bought, I couldn't get Zoom to recognize it. And then I changed halfway through the interview to um, just little earplugs with a tiny mic in the um, court. And of course, that sounds even worse. So I'm really sorry about the bad audio quality on my side. I worked out afterwards what I had done wrong, so hopefully this won't happen again. So here's Nick Sinclair of Toa Global and his insights as an offshoring provider. Brief summary of it. So, I mean, I went on a roadshow with Rob Nixon and then after the first event, other firms said, look, we don't want to replicate what you're doing. Can we put someone in? Can we just put people in with you? And I was, I call it entrepreneurial. Or I also call it young and dumb, where I just said yes. And, and then it sort of grew from there. Yeah, tell me, who's Rob Nixon? So he is a, an accounting coach in, a, well, he was predominantly in Australia. So he's probably the most well-known in Australia and if not globally. He mainly only coaches in the US now, but he's a business coach for accountants. He's done that for about 20 years. And how come you were on a roadshow with him? So I um, sat on a board with him for a group called Entrepreneurs Organization. So he was the president of our board and I was one of the board members. And he he asked me to go on the roadshow with him because we'd both been to the Philippines for a global leadership conference couple of months before and that's really where I got the idea of building a global team and he was over there at the same time that I was and then he saw what I did and then about five months later he asked me to go on a speaking tour he spoke to about 1500 accountants over 13 destinations around Australia and New Zealand and he sold business advisory so he wanted me to come and basically be he wanted to use me as this guy's young, he's entrepreneurial, he's got 38 staff in the Philippines, he's got 30 in Australia, he's doing $20 an hour bookkeeping. If you don't basically go down the business advisory track, then guys like this are going to take your, take your clients. So he was using me as a, you know, my story to basically get people to move business advisory. But after the first event, I had five firms come up and say, look, we love what you're doing we don't want to replicate it, can we just put people in your office? And that's really where 
I had 20 spare seats at that time. So I looked and went, well, if I sell those or lease those 20 seats, that'll cover my office costs. And then I'm just paying for my, my team's costs. So it's a benefit for me. But what happened after three weeks of being on the road with Rob is I'd sold 90 seats, what we call seats or people. So within three weeks, I've gone from, you know, running a financial planning and accounting business to then selling 90 roles into an office in the Philippines, which I didn't have enough seats or even have a business to do that. So pretty quickly we became a business and we just continue to double and double every year. And now we're you know, over 1600 staff and, and, you know, growing 50 to 70% year on year. With how many seats did you start? I think you said you had 20 spare seats. So I guess you were starting with 30, 40 seats. I had my firm in, in Australia where I had 30 staff in Australia or 38 in Australia. And I put on 30 team members in the Philippines. So we took out a lease in the Philippines in an area called Clark, which had 50 uh, seating capacity of 50. And 30 of those were used for my team and 20 were used, were vacant, basically. So they're the ones that I was, when the, these firms asked me, I, and I said, yes, it was initially for those 20 seats, but then I ended up obviously selling 70 more seats than I had, so. Did you rent those 50 seats from another BPO, or did you actually go to Clark and register your own company and office, and rent office space in this company's name? Yeah, so when I initially set it up, we, when I first went over there for that board meeting, I went and visited other BPOs. I visited about nine BPOs and I chose one of them to use. But after a couple of months, I basically was sick of my staff turnover being so high. So I would go in there, I would train these team members up and suddenly they would leave. It was only when I went back there after a couple of months and I walked in the office and I'm like, hang on, all of those five people sitting over there, which is about three desks away from where my current team are, are the people that I trained up. But they had left me, I thought. But what, they, what the BPO was doing is that once they were trained, they were selling them to another client for more money because they were trained in Australian bookkeeping then. That is very naughty. Look, to be honest, it's common. It's, it's one of the things with the BPOs is that most of the time they're looking out for the employee's benefit, not their own. So it's happened, it happens with many. I mean, we've got a policy where you can't transfer among clients because of that exact reason. Otherwise people would just want to move to other accounts and you do all the hard work, train them up and then they move them. So when that happened, I then went to go, all right, well, let's set up our own. I'm sick of what's happening. This is working well for us, but the provider's not working well. Let's go and set up. So we chose to actually set up in Clark and we became incorporated in the, what's called the CDC. It's the short form is the CDC. So we incorporated there. We set up our own office. When you want to incorporate a company within Manila, it is a nightmare. A lot of, you know, I don't know. It can be challenging. I mean, we've got it. I mean, we've got entities in Manila, Clark and Cebu. So we've got three entities over there for the three locations. They have these free trade zones. And outside of these free trade zones, it's really hard to incorporate a company and you have to pay a lot of, I don't want to call it a bribe, but a lot of money has to change hands until you finally get there. But was it much easier in Clark to register um, the company? Yeah, I think what you were explaining is not necessarily how it is now. I mean, we opened up only in, Clark, in Cebu 15 months ago and... And it's not, the new government have got rid of a lot of the corruption, but there, was it easy? No, it wasn't straightforward. Was it, it's definitely more complex than, I mean, we've got entities in Canada and Toronto or Toronto and Canada. We've got one in San Diego in the US. 
So the Philippines was definitely harder to incorporate than both of those in some aspects, but in other aspects, it was easier. It's a process. It's If you've got a business set up properly there and you follow that process, it's relatively straightforward. It's where a lot of people try to, if you want to go and put on five staff there and set up your own entity and and that's the purpose of the entity, yeah, it's, it's difficult. But if you're setting it up as a proper business over there, I mean, we've also got a, a learning business in the Philippines, which 100% only does learning for our own entities, but that's deemed under the Philippines government as a, a training organisation. So we need to meet all of their training organisation rules, which are even harder. But incorporation isn't that complex if, if you've got it done right. Okay. And so you have three offices in Clark, two in Manila and one in Cebu. Are they all sitting within these free trade zones or are they outside of the free trade zones? So Clark is a free, what they call a free port zone. So that is a, 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 a special area, but Cebu and Manila are not, they call them in Cebu and Manila, they call them PESA zones. Yes. But yeah. To become a PESA, it's not a whole zone. So if you think of, I mean, we're in an area called Ortigas. So the whole of Ortigas is not a PESA zone. It's certain buildings are PESA accredited. So there's an accreditation process that both the building needs to go through and also the, the company that's occupying it. So we're PESA approved in Ortigas and we're PESA approved in Cebu, but it's not always beneficial for companies to become PESA accredited. It really depends on what the type of business is. But because of our size and, and what we do, it, it's definitely beneficial for us to do that. But with that comes significant requirements from office setups, the seating capacities, the, there's a whole bunch of rules that come with that. When you're not a PESA accredited, there's less rules behind the spot, like how many people, density of office space and things like that. And is it difficult to become PESA accredited? I would say no, but that's only because we've got so many staff there and we've got enough people in-house that make it happen. When we first started, it was definitely difficult. It was you know, when we first moved into CDC and when we first moved into Manila, it was it was a lot more challenging because we had a few staff. We didn't have a proper business there, but, you know, we've got VPs, directors. We've got extremely senior people there now, which makes the process when we set up in Cebu quite straightforward and seamless. You started with an office in Clark. Why do you have three offices in Clark and not just one big one? Well, there's a few reasons. One is each office is um, fitted out to seat 450 people. So if you look at trying to, there's no real building where you can put, you know, over 1,200 people in one floor. So we're very much around having our facilities. If you look at the density and requirements, each of our offices has a cafe, they have breakout rooms, we have medical clinics in our offices. The functionality and design of our office is really built around culture and driving, you know, 30% of our space is focused on the employee and downtime and having a break and rest. The rest of the space is really built around productivity. So this is where they're working, their desks and their work environment. So we have a significant amount of space. So if you look at our offices on average of 2,500 square metres per office floor, so roughly 750 square metres of that is, is breakout and relaxing area. The rest of it is production area. And in that, breakout, in that breakout area, I'm talking about that's where all their lockers are, that's where all the bathrooms are, where it's cafes, you know, 
yes. training and rooms, all of those things. And is that quite standard now for the Philippines? Because it sounds very good to me. Could it no. be that you are one of the top employers? Like, have you won awards as employer of the year? Yeah, in the look, we, yeah, the we, benefits you provide? we don't go into that sort of awards. We don't do it for, you know, I know a lot of companies go out there and try and win awards and, and promote that. We don't, we don't enter any. We're more focused on what we're delivering to our team members. So are our offices at a higher standard than most in the industry? Yeah, definitely. It's significantly higher than most. So, but we do it. I mean, we set them up so that we can maximize productivity and, and maximize culture. So, so I suppose to answer your question in Clark, we have three offices in Manila. We have two now because we've, we've expanded into an overflow site, but we only have a certain amount of people per location because of mainly the culture. It's hard to manage. Like if we had 1,300 people in one building, it would just, the culture would be too hard to manage as, along with our cafes and medical clinics. And we want people to, to get a personalised relationship and management while they're in our offices it's, as opposed to feeling, you know, just one of like when you go to a high school and there's thousands and thousands of kids, it's very, it's not very personal. So if you have a smaller class and more intimate classes, it feels a lot more personal and culture is a lot easier to, to drive and manage it in that aspect. Thinking back of the past experience you described when you had trained your staff and then you actually found them working for another client. When I spoke to others about TOA, I learned that about 10% of your new seats are filled with existing staff being moved from a terminated seat, but then pretty much 90% of your seats are filled with new staff, so with a new hire. Is that why? Because you want to really stay away from moving staff from one client to another. So if a client leaves you, would you then usually terminate that staff member? Or does it just very rarely happen that clients leave you? Hence, you don't have this question of what do you do with a left-behind staff member? Yeah, look, to be honest, we don't lose a significant amount of, of clients. The ones that do leave, we do re-employ them with other with other clients. So if a client was to leave us, anyone that's working for that client can go back into what we call the talent pool and be re-employed by another client. We just won't allow it that if an employee wants to change clients and both the clients are still clients, then we won't allow that. But if a client of ours was to leave the business, that team member does go back into, I mean, we still employ them, we're the legal employer. So we redirect them to another client at that point in time. But yeah, we wouldn't swap them between clients. The majority of our, I mean, the majority of our new roles are, they're not trained. They're not coming from existing clients. They're basically, I mean, 60% of our growth comes from our existing clients growing their teams and the other 40% comes from new clients joining the business. Just quickly covering notice periods. It's not an area. It doesn't feel good talking about notice period right at the start of a relationship. Like when you go out on a date for the first time, you definitely don't <laughs> talk about prenuptials or something like this. But I still think it's good to kind of understand how little one is locked in or how much one is locked in. And I understand that there's a 30-day and a 90-day notice period. I think the 90-day notice period is actually what you have to do as per Philippine employment law? Yeah, so, I mean, the Philippine employment law, is, it varies. I mean, we don't, clients have to, if they want to terminate the agreement with us, it's a 90-day notice period. So that's, you know, if someone's entering into an agreement with us and they want to end it, 
they need to give us 90 days notice. Now, within that, we will either re-employ their team member to someone else, or if they're not able to be re-employed, then we will make them redundant or terminate their employment with us. There is no real 30 days. I mean, the, the legislation in the Philippines is quite complex. It's quite similar in some ways to Australian employment law where you can't just terminate the services of someone if you no longer want them. There is obviously redundancies or you need to re-employ them into another role. The other way, the other one is around performance, where it's performance related. You do need to put them on a personal, it's called a PIP, performance improvement plan, and they need to either demonstrate that you've tried to help them improve and they improve and then they stay in the role or if they don't improve over a period of time then they are their employment is terminated but it follows very similar legislation to what we have here just very quickly talking about prices just so that listeners get a feel for what it would cost to employ a team member overseas i think there are four components the first one is the salary a client pays the salary in PHP, so in Philippine pesos. And that, of course, fluctuates on the Australian bill because the salary is paid in PHP, so it's translated into Australian dollar at the um, current exchange rate. Then I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, there is a management fee of about $770 per month. I assume that the $70 is GST. Correct. So the actual management fee is $700. So yes. these are the main ongoing cost components, the salary plus the $700 per month. Then there's a deposit of two salaries and two management fees just to cover this 90-day notice period. And then I think there's a startup fee of 2000 Australian dollars. Yeah, the kickstart fee is 2000 which basically covers the onboarding process, yeah. Sorry, we didn't discuss the actual salaries. Of course, this will go up with time due to inflation and also fluctuate anyway with the FX movement between the Philippine peso and the Australian dollar. But here are the median salary ranges currently listed in TOA's 2020 presentation deck for prospective clients. Accountants and bookkeepers are paid between 900 and 1500 Australian dollars per month. SMSF accountants quite a bit more. They start at 1500 Australian dollars per month and can go up to 1900 per month. And then support roles, so admin or marketing support and executive assistance, they start at $800 per month and can go up to 1400 per month. So these are the salaries and then on top you pay the management fee of 700 plus the deposit of two months plus a kickstart fee of 2000. Back to Nick. When you look at all the options that are out there to work with a team member overseas, to set up a team member overseas, I think there are basically four options and one of them you cover. The first one is to just engage an individual freelancer who works from home. So you go on Upwork or a different platform and you find an individual freelancer, you talk to them via Zoom or Skype and you handle the, um, you handle the payment yourself or you employ them through Upwork, but basically you employ them directly. Then I think the other next option is outsourcing, where you pay a fixed fee for a certain product. For example, if there are providers out there that offer a fixed fee per SMSF, etc. 
Then there's offshoring, and that's where you come in, where you basically provide the team member, but it's up to the client to then train this team member and fit them into their processes. So this team member really becomes a part of the um, overall team. And then the fourth option is what you then decided to do after you had started with just leasing seats and that was to set up your own office and that of course is a major exercise before we talk more about this offshoring option that you offer just a very quick question regarding setting up your own office for how many team members onwards is it worth to set up your own office would you say from 50 onwards or from 100 onwards or from 12 onwards you know how large should a team be before it becomes economical to look into setting up your own office it depends on how you look at it from an economics point of view i mean you could argue that it would be as low as 20 people but you know we've got clients that have got over 100 people with us and and some that plan to have you know four five hundred with us and they don't have any plans to ever set it up on their own because i think one of the challenges is it's not necessarily just the dollars it's you need to have people over there to run it you can't it's not just a an office that you set up down the road and you chuck some people in there to work from it. You need leadership there. If you're transferring money from Australia, there's transfer pricing agreements, which means you're paying tax to the Philippines government on the money you're transferring over. You can't just transfer over the money for the wage and office costs. You've got to abide by the Philippines tax legislation. So that means you need to have transfer pricing agreements in place Technically, that could be deemed under payroll tax in Australia as an employee, even though it's a separate entity in a different country. And that's one of the challenges with going direct. If you've got a direct hire employee and you've got enough of them, then they could be deemed as an employee under, under Australian payroll tax. I'm not sure about that. Sorry, this is very tax nerdy and out of context. And I know this is not an episode about Australian payroll tax, but I'm not sure to what extent Australian payroll tax would affect an employee working in the Philippines. Let me play you a short clip from the very first episode we did, episode one with Andrew Fricot and Enka Da of Revenue New South Wales. While this is about payroll tax in New South Wales, I can imagine the other states and territories are similar when it comes to overseas workers. So this is where a worker is wholly working outside of, of Australia for a calendar month. And it, what this means is that there's a liability that's still to be paid if the worker is working wholly outside of Australia but is paid into, a new, into an Australian jurisdiction. So let's say, for example, I typically work in New South Wales and I'm paid here and then I go to work in the UK. So if I go to the UK for three months for work purposes and I'm continually still paid into my New South Wales bank account, my wages will still be taxable in New South Wales because there, it doesn't meet the exemption criteria. And that exemption is... I have to be overseas for greater than six months in order to not pay payroll tax on those wages. So as soon as a worker is overseas for longer than six months, those wages are not liable from day one that they go overseas. So I'm not sure about payroll tax, but Nick is right that employing a large team overseas can affect your employer status in Australia. So again, I'm not you know, that's not, I'm not giving that advice, but we've certainly been given in the advice in the past where, you know, what is deemed as an employee. A couple of years ago, I made one of the roles redundant here in, in Australia. And because we owned the entity in the Philippines and it had more than, we globally had more than a certain number of employees, it, it had different rules apply. You're no longer applying the rules of just an Australian small business. So I think that 
there's all of these other factors. People just look at the cost of it sometimes as opposed to, you know, if you've got an office there, you've got to be there every month. And if not, you've got to have other leaders there of similar level to you being over there to run it. It's not just employ low cost labor, set up a bank account. It's easy to pay and easy to run. That's it's the complete opposite to that. So for companies that are doing it, I mean, we've got a lot of companies around that, you know, 30, 50, 60 staff with us. And the last thing they want to do is go and set up their own, even though it may be more cost effective, but you know, at what point do you go, we're already getting a massive cost arbitrage versus what's our primary business? Is it running an accounting firm and, and just, delivering services and serving our clients or is it we're just trying to save every penny we can on everything we do for clients who have 100 200 300 400 team members with you i assume that the management fee is then scaled down i assume that 700 comes in when you just have a handful of yeah it tears down members. i mean it does tear down over 10 and then over 20 then you know the relationship varies when you've got a team of 50 people the relationship does vary and what I mean by that is at that level, you need a lot more of your own HR support. So we provide different services to clients as they get bigger. And fundamentally, it's the same arrangement. It's just things slightly change. So where a client would have, say, 100 team members, we would give them one of our HR team that is their HR person now in-house to work for that team. So we generally have a HR ratio of one to 100 team members. So instead of, you know, this one HR person working across multiple clients, they now only work for that direct client. They're still a, deemed an employee of our support team. But so there's things like that, which we, we get a lot more intimate knowledge about the client and the little things that they need to be managed different. I and mean, that's really where I suppose once they're getting over that 50 people, that's really where the relationship is more custom towards things like that. Have you ever had a client who left you to set up their own office in the Philippines? Yeah, we did. And it closed about four months later. I so, see. so did they come back to you? No, they went broke. So oh, there's a whole story around that one. But they tried to, to do it all. And yeah, their team members all came back to us, but the, the client didn't. Oh, I see. Looking at these four options again, individual freelancers, outsourcing, offshoring and setting up your own office. And then also considering the other providers that also offer offshoring. Who is your greatest competitor? Who are you competing with? Other offshoring providers or companies trying to set up their own office or individual freelancers? Who would you see as your greatest competitor? I don't really see that we have a competitor, to be honest. I think that our biggest competitor is the mindset of the accounting industry still. There's a large proportion that are using this strategy, but there's a significant proportion that still don't. You know, the freelancer model doesn't work. It, it works cost effectively for a little while, but team member turnover, security, you know, internet quality, there's a range, you know, payments. There's a range of reasons why that model doesn't work. You know, we, a couple of years ago, we saw a bunch of, you know, firms trying to set up their own entities over there and we saw that all come and go. That, that just didn't work either. So, and there's no one else that really niches or focuses on this niche. There's a couple of smaller providers, but if you wrapped out probably our four or five competitors, we're still bigger than all of them combined. So I, I really see that the industry's the biggest competitor in that, you know, there's still a large part of the industry that are, that are not educated enough to realise the benefits of it. 
So that's probably where, I mean, it's, and it's not a, I'm not saying that out of arrogance. I'm saying it out of the reality of like the industry itself is probably the biggest challenge that we have as opposed to competitors. You just mentioned other offshoring providers. I think you are the second largest employer of accountants in the Philippines. I think the first one is EY and then yes. comes you. Does EY also offer offshoring services you do or does EY just hire this many accountants for their own needs? I mean, they deal with 50% of the Philippine stock market. So they're a large accounting firm over there. They've been around a long time. I see. So um, they actually need all these accountants to yeah, service Philippine. Yeah. yeah, they do offer shared services to some other EY companies, but they don't actually do the level of work we do. It's very basic and it's more interchangeable between EYs. So yeah, I mean, they're about six and a half thousand staff. We'll, we'll be bigger than them within the next five years. But it works well with us and them, if, if, if that's the easy way to say it. They, their average tenure of team members is three years. Their average age of a team member is 23. They take 50% of the CPA board pass um, exam passes into their business each year. So they take a couple of thousand in, about 1,500. And all they want is low-cost labour. They train them up. They use them. They work them excessive hours. They pay them really poorly. And then after three years they then release them out into the industry or, or by that stage, they're all looking for new jobs to be honest. So our typical per employee has got three plus years experience and it's coming out of an Coming from EY. Yeah. It's a, look, it's a, it's a great recruitment source for us, but you know, that's part of the challenge as we get bigger, it becomes less and less because there's only so long we can feed off them. So we're now embedded into universities. We've become, you know, our training organization over there is becoming a lot Better known. Widely known and yeah, things like that. So that strategy worked in the first, you know, four or five years, but you know, it's less and less over the last couple of years as we've become bigger and bigger. It's yeah, feed us the volumes we need. When we spoke about your competitors, even though you don't really see anybody as your competitors, you mentioned five other shared services providers. Could you give me some other names? I think D and V Philippines yeah, D, is one. Yeah, DMV, they do, I mean they do outsourcing they're not an actual offshoring company so they do you send them a job and they charge you per hour so they're an hourly based one there's another one small one called hammerjack they don't have a huge amount of accounts maybe 100 200 at most but very similar they're more of an outsourcer as opposed to an offshoring company they do have some offshoring roles but not many the main one the main one that is there is a company called frontline they're based in eastwood in manila so they're I don't know, three, 400 staff possibly. I'm not, I'm not sure on what their numbers are, but they do the, the same model that we do. They're probably the main one that do what we do. And then there's a bunch of what I call general BPOs, you know, cloud staff, some mapters, you know, all those sorts of ones. There's another one called DBA. Is, they do some accounting and financial planning work, but none of them really are a niche. If you looked at the ones that actually niche in accounting, it's us in front line. The rest of them are, you know, they deal, they deal with everything. Yeah, and Frontline is a lot smaller. Yeah, yeah, significantly. They started before us, about six months before us, but haven't grown as well. Looking at your staff, I think you have about 1,500 technical staff based in the Philippines, of which about 1,100 cover Australia, the other 400 cover New Zealand, Hong Kong, Singapore, the US, and 
Canada. Canada just came on board. Yeah, so most of them are in, the majority of them, the 1,100 would be Australia and New Zealand. The remaining 400 would predominantly be North America, US and, and Toronto. We have a small contingent across um, Europe. It's not a client that we typically target or chase after, but they're people that have come to us. But in, in saying that in the future, our strategy may change to include more of, more of Europe as we grow. Of the 1,100 technical staff, around 55% cover accounting, 25% cover bookkeeping, and 20% cover EA, VA marketing. Does yeah, that so right? the ones that are non-accounting roles, are a lot of them are admin work, so client service assistants, corporate secretarial work. Most of it is administration-type roles that accounting firms would have. And then we've got a small percentage of them that are VAs, more EAs, so executive assistants and marketing roles. So most of the 20% would actually be admin-based roles for accounting firms doing yeah, client service work, corporate secretarial, reception, that type of work. And all your staff is, all your technical staff is full-time working 40 hours per week. Is that something you worked out over time? So did you have some part-time arrangements to start with and then you found out that the only thing that really works is full-time? No, we've always had full time, purely because... That staff member is your staff member, hence yeah, it doesn't work. We employ them for a client. If they're, if they're you know, serving two bosses, then... Yes, it doesn't it's work. Just, it's too hard. And, and I've seen, you know, that's one of the biggest challenges you have with, like, you know, work from home roles is a lot of the time they've got two or three clients that they deal with when you think you're the only client that they deal with. And they're juggling tasks, they're juggling work. And we, we looked at them and went, the reality is, is for the cost of what we're offering, if someone can't fill that role full time, then they're probably not big enough of a client. If they can't fill someone's uh, 40 hours of someone's time, they're probably not ready to build a global team yet. They're probably better to just go and get a part-time worker for five hours a week. What about your employees? They don't have any desire to work part-time because that's a big thing here in Australia, you know, work-life balance and working mothers, et cetera, working part-time. That doesn't exist in the Philippines yet. But not really. Well, 90% of our employees are the primary income earner for the family. So I would say no. And to be honest, even in Australia, we've offered part-time roles. We struggle to fill them. You know, we've got most of our... You know, 50% of our Australian team, there's 20 of us here and half of them are female and they've all got young kids, but they prefer to work full time. So, you know, I, I don't buy into some of the, you know, work-life balances. I don't buy into that word anyway. I think, you know, it's about, yes, I agree. <laughs> it's mm. about how you want your life to be and how you balance that out. And it can never be in perfect balance you either. You know, yeah. if, you're, if you're not working, I mean, if you've got this perfect balance where you're sitting on the beach, well, you're not normally earning money. So then your, your financial status is reduced because of that. But, you know, equally, if you're just working too much and you've got lots of money, well, you know, you don't yes. equally have a life. So, yes, yeah, it's an interesting one. that is a little bit off topic and goes a little bit back to something which we already discussed and that is when you look at the entities you already hinted at it i think you have and do you have a separate entity for each of the offices or do you have one entity for the clark offices and then one entity for the manila offices and then one entity for the cebu offices yeah each region has its own entity Office. so our structuring is that yeah each each location has its own entity and that's purely just because of the 
PISA. The the, yeah, the way that the accounting standards work over there. Yeah, and also because of PISA, etc., isn't it? Because each yeah, PISA if you want to be PISA accredited, then you need to potentially have a different entity. You can do it in some cases with one, but you know, it wasn't the yes. advice that we got from our accountants. And a few years ago, I think it was very common to then have all Philippine entities to sit underneath a holding in Hong Kong. Yeah. Is that still quite common? I laugh because I just think that, you know, there was one or two so-called experts advising everyone on that. And it was just, it was wrong. It was bad advice, you know, my yes. personal opinion, but it's, we don't do it. You know, people trying to avoid Australian tax did it. That's why they did it. So they were trying to avoid tax, which is, mm. you know. And I that would have backfired anyway. Yeah, it has. I mean, a lot of There are plenty of rules around to pick that up. But that's why I was curious. I just wanted to see whether it's still common. I mean, we have entities in in America. We have entities in Canada. They're all held by an Australian holding company, which ultimately owns everything and pays the tax in Australia. Welcome back. So to iterate the options you have, hiring freelancers overseas who work from home, outsourcing, offshoring, and setting up your own overseas office. Now, setting up your own office overseas is a big thing and something for advanced players with plenty of experience working with offshore teams. So if you're at the start of your offshoring journey, consider the other three options. So freelancers, outsourcing, and offshoring. And while there is this distinction between outsourcing and offshoring, It is more of an academic one. In accounting, pure outsourcing doesn't really work. So outsourcing is when you're just given a finished product and you don't manage the creation of that product. So for example, you pay a fee per SMSF, have no other involvement with the actual work, you just maintain the client contact, and then you receive the finished annual return at the end. Whereas in offshoring, you run the team who creates the SMSF annual returns, for example, or whatever it is, you're team is to do. You train your team, you set up the processes, you tell them how you want them to do what. Now, the lines between offshoring and outsourcing are actually fluid. It is not black and white, but a scale with many grays. Most, if not all providers, servicing accountants will lean towards offshoring, meaning you have some input in whatever your team is doing. In the next episode, episode 243, Nick Sinclair will talk about how to run an offshore team when you do offshoring. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.